0: Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online wpvmfm.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI Cultural Energy Radio coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Uh, thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. Oh, always good to hear your music, Walter, and if. If anybody, anybody out there listening would like to know more about Walter's music, Walterparks.com is a good place to go. Davine Dial, thank you for holding WPVMFM together. We could not do this without you, and we really do appreciate it. And any of you, any of you would like to learn more about community radio, WPVMFM.org is a good place to start. And if you would like to join me and my creative collaborator any Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and noon Eastern Time for our Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week Salon, we would love to have you. You can find the Zoom link at ImaginativeStorm.com. We gather there with a group of writers, usually 25 people on the Zoom call. We write, we work with prompts, and we read our works. Pretty simple. And afterwards, we stay around after the top of the hour the official version lasts an hour, we stay around after the top of the hour for a, a salon conversation. And it goes in many, many, many different directions. And so today I have one of our participants, uh, Charlene Sue, she's on on the call with us today. and. <laughs> Or with us on this interview, I'm going to interview her. And the reason I I wanted to interview Charlene was because I've been on a number of Zoom calls with her, and I've always enjoyed her enthusiasm. I I know a few things about Charlene, and we'll learn more as we go on. And Charlene isn't an, is an actor. She studied uh, Shakespeare in a deep way. She she loves poetry. She likes to write, and she's just basically been engaging the world creatively. For I suspect and maybe as long as she can remember. I don't know, we'll find out about that. So Charlene, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio.
1: Hi Nave.
0: I'm so glad you agreed to come on, and I'd like to start this <laughs> this conversation by by I said you've been practicing creativity as long as you can remember. Am I lying to everybody, or is is that the truth? Do you remember a time when you you weren't practicing it, and if there was a time when you weren't actively engaged in your creative work, what in the world were you
1: doing? You know, Navi, no, I think that we all have a creative streak. I mean that we and that we're always creative and being creative and if we're not even if we're not um, putting out work or doing something we're busy observing and we're busy discerning patterns that we ourselves have that other people have and we're always gathering information when people are perceived as artists it's because other people perceive them as very observant and always always looking at the world but i think that we all are regardless that we're always observing and we're always processing. It's just that there's some of us that are <clears throat> more obvious seekers to outsiders. But just because someone is quiet, you know, for example, one of our participants who I know well, Kay, you wouldn't think that Kay outwardly, and she holds a, a 95 job in the science field, she's highly creative, visually, writing wise, observant wise. So, yeah, I think that we are all artists.
0: When you were growing up, when did you start to actively engage your artists? I mean, I I agree. We are are all artists. Everyone walking around is born with more creativity than they know what to do with. And (sighs) then they figure out how to organize that. Some people, maybe they don't appreciate how much range they have. So they don't organize it that much. They might just choose a more narrow path. They don't have to, but some people choose a more narrow path. And what I mean by that is I, I, they'll just pick one thing and they'll do it and do it. And it'll be the same for a long time. And maybe they'll shift a little bit, but they'll keep the status quo and not go out into other realms that they could possibly go into. For you, when did you start to know you wanted to move in some of the directions that you have moved in. And tell us what you are are doing now to frame your answer around the work you're engaged in today.
1: To answer the first one, um I think that the first time I did a Shakespeare in the Park, I had just graduated from high school. And so I was at this at this community college just taking the summer course and it was Shakespeare in the Park. And we were doing a comedy of errors and I got cast as the the ingenue. And I had such a blast. And I'd always had teachers telling me that I should get into theater. And coming from the background that I can come from, which is, you know, Chinese, the performing arts is not held. It's not something you do. It's not something that's encouraged. Chinese parents want you to become a doctor. And if you won't become a doctor, then you should at least become an attorney. And if you won't become a an, an attorney then you should become an accountant and well for god's sake if you won't go and be an accountant then be a teacher so i always i've always felt like i was working against that grain and not acknowledging my impulses so i've always been in love with words and with reading i was a, i was a big reader i remember when i first started reading you know when you're sitting around in a circle in first grade and you have those you know red book and Look, spot, look, run, spot—those kind. And I remember, like the first time I, could, I I I was able to identify the abstraction of the. So I've always been attracted to language, and I was a an English major when I was in college. Um, and then at that time, I was also getting into movement. I was really big into movement, and at that point, it was more traditional. It was jazz. It was ballet. And it wasn't until later when I I. Uh, started working with a performance artist that I started getting into abstract movement and putting language into abstract movement and trying to tell stories through abstract movement and the body. And so that's how I started.
0: Interesting about abstract movement. So the abstraction warm would be an abstraction in poetry. You would try to describe that abstraction in concrete terms my shirt was so wet after an hour walking down the street so when you create abstract dance and you put movement into it do you try to make a story with your abstractions you try to abstract you try to make a concrete story from the abstracted movement
1: and you have this really lovely uh, technique, you do any kind of a movement, it can be a whoosh, whoosh, and you you repeat it and you repeat the sound and the sound and movement. And at a certain point, suddenly it becomes revealed to to you what you're doing. I'm threshing wheat, and suddenly you're there in this wheat field. And as soon as you figure out what you're doing in the wheat fields, are you looking for something? Are you running from something? Are you lost? Are you harvesting the wheat? Then you've got the story and an environment. So instead of using the everyday gestures that, that we have, or even using very simplified distilled gestures to, like, express an emotion... Um, An abstract movement is literally abstract, has nothing to do with anything, but in the repetition of it and in the discovery of it, it might be that, oh my gosh, I'm opening this box. Like I found this box that my grandmother left for me and my parents forgot to tell me that she had left it for me and I found it and I finally opened it and there was this basket that i had woven for my grandmother when i was 8 years old that same movement suddenly it gives me the impression that yes i am opening this box and that's where the that's where the the information comes from
0: so instead of just movements that are haphazard that have no meaning they you start to get a sense of oh there's yes. a box and then you're surprised and then the next movement is i have to open it and you reach in and then you take it apart and every movement is exaggerated. And then when you take it apart, maybe a winged creature flies out of the box and then you fly with that creature. Would that be similar? Was you, that what you're you talking what? about?
1: That, listen, that is beautiful. That is a little bit, that's quite sophisticated in, do, in what you're saying. I mean, it's beautiful to do, but you could put together something like that. I mean, you wouldn't do it all in one thing, probably. But yeah, I mean, you could definitely come up with the story that way.
0: Or it could be more grounded. The, the The box would be a ring from your grandmother that had been passed down from your mother and you thought you had lost it. And my uh-huh. God, I found it and here it is. And what am I going to do with it now?
1: Yes, it can It can go anywhere. It's just, you start from an abstract place. I mean, you know, one of the, the brilliant things that this per- performance artist I work with, his name is Scott Kellman. And one of the things he said that was so, that is so profound and I always, always remember in any kind of creative endeavor is when you have a good idea, trash it. Just throw it away and get rid of it. Because what you're doing is you're coming up with the most obvious idea. Your mind wants to be clever. And he says, and those ideas are not interesting. Like no one's interested. No one's interested in those ideas. Because what you have to do is get to a place where, the idea comes out from left field. And those are the ideas and those are the insights that are really, it's like acting, right? It's like acting. Like if you act a scene and you're result oriented, you end up inadvertently telegraphing it to the audience and no one is surprised. But if you go, go into that scene trusting that you've already done the work so that you're not in the dialogue, not thinking about what you're going to do, not thinking about it. And then you just listen, then anything can come out. And that's what's exciting is you not knowing because you don't know in real life. And so that's the same thing, right? It's the same thing. It's, it's the not knowing. And so you want it. So with Scott, it was don't do the obvious, do not do the, if you, if there's something obvious and you've thought about it, trash it, get involved in what you're doing until something informs you it, it's like the imaginative storm that's why i love imaginative storm it's because you know you can't like with all of those wonderful words that everyone contributes to the collective word word pot you can't shape in it a dance you look at it and bam you, you're working from that explosive creative energy
0: right and those of you listening uh, Charlene just referenced the Imaginative Storm, and I referenced it earlier when I said we get together every Saturday morning and write from the Imaginative Storm in, in our Zoom call. So you got a little bit of a sense of what what we're we're doing with that on on Saturday Saturday morning. It's just this playfulness. We're trusting what we don't know, or we're trusting that the original beat that we thought was good is worthwhile, I suppose. But it's not the be all end all of what we're doing. So coming back to the idea, the good idea, trash it. That's a way of saying the obvious idea, the cliche idea. Most of my ideas that I come up with, you know, off the top of my, not off the top of my head, but a lot of them, you know, they're okay. But when you dig underneath it and the idea can be something that you could make happen or it could be a little portal that takes you deeper into something that you didn't even know was there is that what you're talking about
1: um yeah it's the uh, it's being surprised by the unexpected and there's nothing more wonderful than being surprised by yourself because you know how often right at least i do sometimes i'm like okay can we think a little differently i mean i'm in a loop i'm going around the mulberry bush so when i have these moments of just surprising myself like. Then I feel like, oh my God, like there's so much hope. It came from this unknown source and here it is. And and it's lovely to I mean, and it's it's lovely because maybe the imagery is not tied in this tedium of, ooh, it's just, it's just suddenly there and magical.
0: <laughs> well, you know, this is mm-hmm. I, need, I need to tell you this because this is on the subject of of the, of the magical aspect of these things. As I told you before we started this conversation, that I've been using this imaginative storm technique to write a memoir, which really means that all I'm doing is using blank sheet of paper in a journal, three pages of, of writing. And I use a fountain pen and I'm picking something out of my life to write about. And then I'm writing into it, realizing that the starting point is just what I know in that moment. And then I'm going to uncover things. So two days ago, I thought, well, I need to write about Losing my hair because I've shaved my head. For those of you who are listening, you wouldn't know this, uh, but Charlene and I can see each other because we're on a Zoom call. I shaved my head, so I I have no hair on my head. Now, if I let my hair grow, it grows out on the side. And so I'm, I'm a bald guy, right? I started losing my hair when I was 17 or 18. In, in high school, I had a receding hairline in my high school yearbook. And, and then when I went off to college, I had more receding. By the time I was 28, it had, had done its duty and gone away, escaped from my head. So I was bald. What's interesting about that, so far so good. But what I have is one hair that grows <laughs> out of the top of my head, only one. And
1: you're a Dr.
0: Seuss character. I'm a Dr. Seuss character. And the and people will see it and they'll say, my God, there's a hair growing out of the top. of you. There's one hair. You need to cut that. And I'm like, well, it's only one hair. Well, what's the big deal? Oh, you need to cut that hair. Well, what? And so far, that's getting a little more interesting. But then when I was writing into my journal, I thought, you know, somebody could take that hair and do a DNA research on me and find out who my ancestors were 10,000 years ago. And then I thought, that hair has witnessed my entire life. That hair was there when I had hair. It's the only hair left standing. It is the witness of everything I have done. It holds the entire story of my life right there in that one thin little stand on my head antennae I got to that I thought my god my hair has witnessed everything it's been there all along who would have guessed that's when it started to get interesting for me now will it remain interesting I don't know that's the layer that I came upon that was beneath the hair that I had lost that beneath the idea of being bald
1: it's wonderful how just focusing on that, you've come with you've come up with so much other stuff that's wonderfully revealing and really how important this one hair is as far as bearing witness to all of it
0: and when we think about bearing witness, witness to history or I'm the citizen journalist and I'm going to collect my stories and you know, change the world, which is all fine. and some people actually do that, We forget. How important our little toe is, our earlobe or the one eyelash in your left eye or, you know, that tooth you never see in the back of your head. Or even the fact that, you know, the riddle of of there there are eight billion people in the world and they are all able to do something that you will never be able to do. Which is, of course, see your face, that idea of what we Aren't able to do, but we think we know about is it's all embodied in the one hair, or the movement when you find the box and there's the grandmother's ring.
1: It's quite a journey because many times you end up sitting in front of a cave that's not open and trying to figure out how to open it and access it. And sometimes a lot of it is just kind of walking around in circles and banging on that rock. I'm thinking of Frodo how they're wanting that cave to open and they've got the key and they have no idea and they're figuring it out. And, you know, suddenly they realize that they can only see the keyhole when the moon is in a certain spot and it's a crescent moon and then it shines and then you can see where the keyhole is. And I feel like creative endeavors are like that, searching for that invisible keyhole that you know is there.
0: (laughs) I've heard from some of my friends, Paul Pascarella being one, he lives in Taos, and Paul is a painter. And Paul always paints during the the new moon time, when the moon disappears. There's one night in the sky when the moon is there, but you can't see it. And then the next, next day, it's a little sliver, which is the crescent. And then it gets bigger and bigger. And finally, 15 days later, you have the full moon. During that time, according to Paul, that's when the 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 veils are lifted.
1: That's when new projects start. That's mm-hmm. like the beginning of new things.
0: Let's just change it a little bit up. One of the things that connect me to you was a conversation, a long one we had on a Zoom call like this, and we launched into the love song of Jay Alfred Proofrock because you have memorized that piece. And I've memorized that as well. For those of you listening, J. Proof Rock" is the the love song of J. Prufrock. Prufrock was Proof Rock was written by T.S. Eliot. And it's a fairly long poem. And I was telling Charlene how I had memorized it. And we were talking about memorization and how you go about it and what it means and all of that stuff. And she said, I know Rock too. We launched into it and we did the entire thing as a team piece, the two of us. So, I'd like for you to talk about why you like to memorize things and what memorization means for you. You know, we've talked about the movement and the freeform movement and how story emerges out of the box that you open and then it goes to another beat and another beat. And eventually you have a full story with a beginning, a middle and an end. And you take your bow and the dance is over. You're creating it as you go. Poetry like the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock is highly highly structured and also Shakespearean plays are highly structured. And I know that you, I don't know if you would say you were a master of it, but you certainly have been at Shakespeare a long time dwelling in structure. So what is it about structure and creativity that stirs your, your soul?
1: The Shakespeare's imagery is so beautiful. So I had a theater company for a few years. It was called Lovers and Madmen, and I got that from a Midsummer Night's Dream. And I'm just gonna I just recite a few lines, just to let the, the language is high. It's high octane. It's lovers and madmen have such seething brains, such shaping fantasies that apprehend more than cool reason ever comprehends. The lunatic, the lover, and the poet are of imagination all compact. One sees more devils than vast hell can hold. That is the madman. The lover, always frantic, sees Helen's beauty in a brow of Egypt. The poet's eye, in a fine frenzy rolling, doth glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven. And as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's bad pen turns them to shape and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. So that is a piece from Midsummer Night's Dream. And it's so full of beautiful imagery. And you just don't find that kind of writing anywhere. And, and in Shakespeare's writing, it's everywhere. Um, because he, you know, because he was steeped in rhetorical forms. And so he already had the structure. It was a matter of pouring in the imagery. But it wasn't that easier. Everyone else could do it. It's just that Shakespeare does it to such a a high degree. And I just find that when when I learn something, I learn it for me because every time I find myself going over it, something drops in deeper. The imagery comes more alive. There's something about the imagery that I didn't perceive the first time or the third time or the 50th time. It's like with the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. I love the melody of it. I think it's one of the most melodic poems written in the English language. It follows this intuitive kind of a logic and feeling. I find it soothing. I find it really soothing. So for me, if I'm in a dark spot or if I'm walking and I, I'm muddled or, or I need to get centered, I'll start launching into the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. And I will always find... A different meaning in something, or I'll see how it was put together and wouldn't be able to be put together any other way. And and that's something that comes from going over it and having access to it. So that when you're driving from here to Taos or here to Portland, it's something that you that, that you own and you get to go over it.
0: I like the idea of a memorized piece having ownership it belongs to you and is ever changing isn't it
1: oh it is it's always changing like i can't tell you how many like with j alfred proofrock i will put it down and i'll not think about it for months and then i'll go back to it and i'll see how oh my god now i see how this part goes along with that part for I have known them all already known from all like suddenly it makes sense why it comes immediately after in a minute there is time for decisions and revisions which a minute can reverse I mean then there's a reason and you know that's that's another thing too about Shakespeare is that his syntax is so perfect that if you were to move something even a, a tiny conjunct you know conjunctive word it would change it. Like, it would change it. So, yeah, so there's something about really beautiful poetry. It's like mm-hmm. reading spiritual text. You keep going back, you keep going back, because in the simplicity lies the wisdom. And that's what I find with Shakespeare. That's what I find with the works of T.S. Eliot.
0: Right. For those of you listening, if you are familiar with The Love Song of J. Alfred Rock. Uh, you you will know the story, of course. If you're unfamiliar with it, the story is fairly simple. Uh, Proof Rock, a man getting on in years, hanging out in the London posh society all his life, and his life was all about going to parties and showing up and being seen and interacting with people on a superficial level. And then one day, somewhere along the way, he starts to realize, oh my gosh, I've blown all this. I've been a spare man all my life. And who wants to be spare? I don't, but I don't know how to be anything other than spare. Nobody really even notices me. When I'm gone, nobody's going to care. But I have to keep doing this over and over and over again because that's just my fate, almost as if I have no control. I just have to keep doing this. And is that the essence of it, or is there more you could add to that? No,
1: you know what? T.S. Eliot wrote this when he was very young. He was like in his early 20s, 23. Mm -hmm. So it's not, I I don't think it's so much a man who is coming towards the end part of his life. I think it's the beginning of a certain kind of a consciousness. You know, the first line is, Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky. Like I think it can be interpreted and seen on so many different levels
0: that is worthy of thinking about because I'd forgotten he, I mean, I knew he'd written it when he was very young. I'm yeah. older. so I'm thinking about the spare man. I'm thinking about let us go then you and I, which is I'm inviting myself likely as long as as well as somebody else. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky, not the morning, the evening, when the evening is spread out against the sky, like a patient etherized upon a table. So as you age, you have health issues and you do end up sometimes etherized upon a table. Hopefully you'll rise again after the operation's over. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't.
1: Or you could be etherized in in a way of sleepwalking through your life.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I totally get that too
1: could be sleepwalking through your life. Because, you know, etherized upon a table, let us go through certain half deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Oh, do not ask what is it? Let us go and make our visit. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo.
0: And I've often wondered in that line, let us go through s- certain half-deserted streets. Are the streets certain? What is, what is being certain here? Are these the streets that we've walked down all the time? Are these the streets that are always there? Let us go through certain half, des- half deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one night cheap hotels. The muttering retreats of restless nights. A young man would see that differently than an, a man 40. And then it's not a masculine or feminine thing. Anybody could go down that
1: street. It's a state of being. You could be on a wonderful trip in Paris, right? and having a fabulous time and suddenly be swept by melancholy and find yourself walking down a certain street and you could be hearing things and not really making out what they're saying because you're not the immediate part of the conversation. The beauty of it is that you can interpret it in so many ways. You could sit down tonight and be in a certain mood and write it from a certain point of view and say, look it, this is what this is about. And then you could sit down a week later and write it again, it would be a different interpretation.
0: You know, you just reminded me years ago, I was teaching poetry at I think it was St. John's School in Paris. It was in, in November. So night comes early in, in Europe in, in wintertime in November. So by five o'clock it's dark, right? And I was walking back from the train to the hotel. I was very hungry. I was tired, it was raining, I was wet, and I could not have been more lonely than I was that night walking down that street. There was nothing like April in Paris. No, this was like total melancholy, and as I walked past a tree that had no leaves,
1: <laughs>
0: I slipped on some mud and fell on the sidewalk in the mud and and there I was on the ground. Trousers muddy, looking oh. down the street at the at the light in the hotel, thinking, "I just need to go down there and get some food." And I
1: oh,
0: didn't dust myself off. I stood up. I had mud on my clothes, and and I, I did note the the sense of emptiness. There I was. That I was in that moment feeling that
1: I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas.
0: Yeah, I've known the eyes already. Known them all. The eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase. And when I am formulated and sprawling on a pin, when I am pinned and wriggling on the wall, then how should I begin to spit out all the butt ends? My days and ways. How should I presume?
1: I mean, it's beautiful. Like just, it's just so melodic. Mm-hmm. Can you think? It's just so melodic and spit out all the buttons of my days and ways. I mean, what an image, you know, what an image of like the days, the banality of it, the futility of it. I just, I mean, it's just, I just think he's, I think it's just an amazing, it's just an amazing piece of, it's, you know, what's really, you're gonna laugh. So I've recited this to a really dear, uh, my shaman up in Portland, Oregon, and she just loves it and she loved it. so. When I was there, like whenever she would have friends over, she's like, and Charlene knows this poem and she's gonna do it for us right now. And she would just embarrass me. But anyway, and then um, I went over, my mentor who founded Shakespeare and Company in the Berkshires, she was convalescing and I went over to help her. She had open hearts, she had like major heart surgery, and I'd gotten her out of rehab. So she was very fragile and really delicate. And we were sitting. And the sun was going down and she was very fragile. I'm like, I will, I'm gonna, I'm I'm gonna recite proof rock to you. This is a perfect time to do proof rock for you. And she fell asleep. Like she just fell asleep in the middle of proof rock. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like after she died, I'm like, Tina, you fell asleep in the middle of proof rock. But there's something about the words and the rhythm and the lyricism about it. Anyone who hasn't read it should go out and get it and read it (laughs) aloud. Read it aloud. Poetry is meant to be read aloud.
0: And, you know, it's also meant to be read slowly without any kind of hurry at all. And people ask me, how do I memorize? Like I memorized proof lock like you did. And I, I took ages and ages and ages to memorize it. And funny enough, I'm still memorizing it in the sense that I'm getting more and more familiar with it every time I talk about it. So people ask me, how do you memorize? And the main tip I give people, and you can reflect on this, I say, just memorize one line at a time and don't worry about how long it takes you to memorize that one line. And I also tell people to read through the whole bit and whatever the piece is and get the sense of the story so they know they know if they're connected to the story or not. I knew I was connected to Proofrock because I, like you, love the language. I like the story. It was an aspirational story for me because I use and still do use it to remind me of how to avoid being pinned and wriggling on the wall, right? Or, you know, I don't want to be somewhere at the end of my life spitting out the butt ends of my days and ways and trying to presume what I'm going to do next. And and who does? And why would anybody want to do that? And yet so many people do end up there, like in the 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 russian folk song those were the days my friends we thought they'd never end we'd sing and dance forever in a day we'd sing and never lose we'd fight the good fight and everybody sings that chorus but the truth of the song is you know the same group of people they start out in the bar when they're in their 20s and then they're still there in their 30s they're still there in their 40s singing that those were the days my friends and then they grow old and the same group is still there and one member of the group is walking by the bar and looks inside and there's the same crew in the back opens the door and they sing those were the days, my friends, but they never go anywhere. They're just still in the bar.
1: <laughs>
0: and I use proof rock as a way of helping me remember we can expand. We can pull the wings out of the box and fly, if you will.
1: So are you using, using it as a cautionary, a cautionary poem?
0: It is a little bit for me. Yeah. It's, it's cautionary. I like the idea of being able to stand at the sea, which at the end of Proof Rock, that's what he does. He finally decides he's gonna go to the beach and roll his pants legs up and walk around, but he's still thinking, well, I've heard the mermaids singing each to each. I do not think they will sing to me. I've seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back, like the wind blows the water white and black. We've lingered in the chambers of the sea with sea girls wreathed in seaweed, red and brown, until human voices wake us and we drown. So poor proofrock goes to the sea, misses the beauty, and he's still worried about drowning in the ocean, or at least that's how I see it. So I want to be able to walk on the sea and think, wow, the entire sea is singing to me, not only the the the, the mermaids, but everything else as well. And I'm singing with it.
1: Yeah, well, I think that, you know, I think that over in those lines, I think he's just feeling that he's so separated from it, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, there's something about where he is in those moments where he is separated, right? Like, I have heard the mermaids singing each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. I mean, how sad is that to, like, admit that or to say, I'm outside of this circle, like it's beautiful, like I have seen them and I don't just hear them, I see them as, I mean, you could almost say it's like someone trying to get to their creative source and knowing that it's there, but never really being able to, to get it in a way that belongs to you, that can free you from whatever isolation you're feeling.
0: Quite a good point. And that is, that is quite right. And one of the things that I love about Proof rock, we can talk for hours about this. And every time you bring up a point or I bring up a point, it informs us more about who we are. And in some ways, when people ask me, how do I memorize? This is how you do it right here. Sitting here, like looking at one line and talking about, well, what, what does it really mean to you if you have, seeing the mermaid singing each to each, but you don't think they will sing to you. Not what did T.S. Eliot mean or what does Charlene think it means or what does Nave think it means? What does it mean to you?
1: Anytime you learn, want to learn a piece, it always has to come from, like you said, a personal point. It's, it's what it means to you. I mean, you know, let's just face it. Like learning something, memorizing something is just painful. I mean, It it is really just painful. It gets fun when you've memorized it and you can go because once you can roll with it, you can take it in so many different directions. And that's when it gets really, really fun.
0: I can agree with you and offer one little variation on that painfulness. When I first started to memorize, it was not painful. It was excruciating. I suffered. It was horrible. I sat there and tried to memorize and and then I would look up and forget it. And and I was so product oriented. I've got to get this line. I've got to get this line. I've I've got to remember it. And I finally got it. I the first poem I memorized was Ulysses by Alfred Lord Tennyson. And Jeez which was kind of long, I admit. I probably should have started with something like the termite knocks upon the wood, tasted it and found it good. And that is why your auntie Mae fell through the parlor <laughs> floor today. That would have been a little easier. That's by Ogden Nash. But I go with you, Uly- Ulysses by Alfred Lord Tennyson, right? And so I sat down and... You know, it little prophets that an idle king by this still hearth among these barren crags. Little prophets that an idle king by this still hearth. Among, little prophets, little, little, little prophets, little prophets. It's a chatter, chatter, chatter. Little, little prophets. Well, I still don't have it. How come I don't know it? It's only been three minutes. What's wrong with me? You know that—that's how I went at it, and it was just painful. Over the years, I learned that that's that's one way to do it. But if I wanted to, if I want to make it less painful, or maybe even pleasurable from the gate, let's just go with one line. Or even half a one. It little profits that an idle king. Hmm. Let me think about that for an hour.
1: (laughs) Sometimes what I'll do is I will write a few lines. And then when I go out or I go on my walk, I might know the first line. And I might be able to paraphrase the second line. And I know it's not right, but I'm paraphrasing it. And the third. And then I'll just pull it out. And then it'll start dropping. I know that when I've uh, tried to memorize my lines for, for productions, what I'll always end up doing is I'll wake up at like two in the morning and I'll be working on my lines in my sleep. And suddenly I'll be working on the lines and I'll come to something that I don't know and I'll turn the light on real low and I'll have my lines lying right next to me. And then I'll look at them and drop them in verbatim. Sometimes, you know, you think you know something And then a few hours later, you go back to it and and you don't know it. You just don't know it. Memorization, learning something, really knowing it happens at so many different levels.
0: Yeah. And I think it's fair to say that the only time you don't know a piece you're trying to memorize is if you have never read it. If all you know is the title. Even when you first read it through the first run through, something of it sticks. Second run through, something of it sticks and it starts to slowly emerge like a long night full of slow blooming flowers. What I found when I think I have it completely done and all the words are in place and I go through it, I will come up with blank spots where I just can't access that phrase. I've started to think of those blank spots, not as failure. Oh, my God, I can't remember it. It's more like, okay, here's an opportunity. For you to develop that opening a little more so you find out what goes in there, and then oh, yeah, I remember that now. And then you think, okay, that was a blank spot. What's going on there? How can I fill out the story that I have built around that in my imagination? So that's what happens to me when I forget, or am not, I'm not forgetting, I'm not able to access the, the line in the moment. I know that that's a cue for me to explore deeper meaning around that line. So I'm Flipping it a bit, which makes uh-huh. it a lot more hopeful in the psychology. I'm like, okay, I'm not a complete abysmal failure that and I and my brain has stopped working. It's more like, okay, here's an opportunity.
1: No, it is. And it's definitely a worthwhile endeavor to find a beautiful piece of writing that you love and commit it to memory and observe the process firsthand for yourself, right?
0: No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So people out there listening, they've been listening into our conversation and you and I haven't been doing an interview. Sometimes when I do these shows, I interview people, I'll ask questions. But this is a back and forth like we've had on a number of occasions. And I love this kind of of exchange. But in terms of of where you are right now and where you're headed and what you're up to as we close out the time, our time together, tell us a little bit about what's happening for you. Now that pandemic time has revised itself, still with us, but it's revised. We're back out in the world a bit now.
1: The pandemic definitely killed theater for quite a, you know, definitely killed small theater. You know, the theater, the, the personal, it's definitely killed that. You know, I, I have a f- friend uh, who's actually the son of my mentor. He wants to come and start a theater company, another one. I've got my own theater company. So I'm not ready to let lovers and madmen go. Like it's still it's dormant. Theater is such a bizarre endeavor. There's no money in it. It's 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 an act of madness. I it is just a sheer act of madness. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. It is just an act of madness. But you know, it seems to be. The circle of hell that I'm confined to. There's a lot of things about doing theater because I do small theater. I mean, that's my theater company and I'm the artistic director, which means I I pick the piece and then, and then I'm the producing artistic director. So if anything happens or anything goes wrong, like I lose my rehearsal space or something happens or an actor, it lands with me. Like I have to figure it out. Part of that, is really lovely because it's a dance. To, to me, being a producer is a dance with the universe and the unknown. Like you just don't know. You have to just walk in there. It's good. So it's completely. It's on a completely different level than, say, the way a director. Um, so my mind is drifting back to theater and, you know, examining the importance of theater and why why it's important. I'm actually right now taking a collage class, so I'm getting into um, visual arts you know you know and i've never considered it like a place i can dress something up but that's part of theater like i can dress an event up and conceptualize but i'm doing it on this different level and i'm actually finding it very informative and very cathartic because there's something about the randomness of your choices and yet once you put once i put everything together and i look at it i'm like oh, it's really not so random. There's more of a revelation. There's more things revealed. It's more of a discovery and it's a more gentle discovery than writing. Like writing is brutal, Navi. Can I just say writing is just brutal? Whereas I think visual, like doing a visual thing like a collage and it's not a drawing. I don't experience it as brutal as I do when I sit down to write.
0: Interesting. I don't have that experience with writing. I have more of a – going to the garden. I I just go to the garden and and, um, muck around and find something. And then when I do put a piece together – and maybe you're describing brutal. I don't know quite what you mean by brutal. I found when I was putting my poetry book together, which is coming out at the end of this year, The uh, 100 Days – A hundred poems I wrote in a hundred days, 11 years ago after I had a surgery, having to stay with it and revise it and revise it and revise it over and over and over again. I didn't feel it was brutal, but I did feel it became kind of tedious and got boring after a while. I thought, well, do I have to keep at this? And I'm like Jesus, man. Let's move on. I need to have a coffee or something, you know. It's like I'm. Is this is if this is art? I don't want to have anything to do with it. Good God, boy, come on. Let me let me call somebody up. I'll call Charlene and talk about proofrock or something. <laughs> so it's not so much brutal for me. Um,
1: you know, I think that for a while I was writing for this um, this small town rag to write articles. I mean brutal in the sense of if you have a deadline.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: You're supposed to write something and they don't really tell you what they want you to write. A, like they just say, here, go, why don't you go interview this artist, go. And then, you know, and then, and then for me, I think because when I write something, I want to capture, it's really important for me to capture the spirit of it. Mm-hmm. Like the gut of it, the spirit mm-hmm. of it. Right. So sometimes I think, oh, it's easy. Like I was doing this little article on Cirque du Soleil and I'm like, I love them, it'll be easy, it'll be easy. But when I sat down, when I was really writing it, I thought, this is harder than hard because I love them so much and I want to do them justice. And when you want to do some something justice, cause you've done the research and you, you, you've you, just, you want to do it justice. Like for me, it just wraps me. I mean, it's, it's literally like a huge spider coming and just like wrapping me and I just become paralytic and it needs to get done and I don't know where to go. And, and, and that's what I mean by brutal is, When I have to come up with the finished product that I hand in after the, at the deadline.
0: Thank you for clarifying that, because I do understand what you're saying now. I've had that same experience and I know what you mean. And I I think brutal would be a good way to describe it. Uh, You know, all of that extra stuff now actually catching the moment and having the fun with it is more delightful. But the, the other part is, is what, what is hard.
1: Oh yeah. And all the false starts, you know, Oh I got it. I'm like you know when you're sitting and, and then you you they give you an extension and you still haven't gotten very far and it's not because you're, <laughs> and it's not because you haven't been working at it you know it's because I don't know like maybe the muse hasn't arrived yet you know mm-hmm. but it's not for lack of effort and maybe what it, what it is is it's processing it and processing it and processing it and yeah. every long turn you take you say ah that's not the right way but it's a lesson learned like it's information gained it's not a wasted direction or wasted work it is information gained, but at the time it just feels like you could throw your i could throw myself off a cliff you know
0: and yet here you are and guess what we have arrived at the at the final part at the top of the hour so we're running out of time we're going to have to we're going to have to have to close <laughs> with you not jumping off the cliff and and I know you haven't jumped <laughs> off the cliff because I'm witnessing you sitting in your chair, smiling ear to ear. <laughs> no, so
1: thank you. This has so much fun.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. I, I really do appreciate it. And do you have a closing word or two before we go?
1: Um, Gosh, closing word. No, I don't have a closing word. Unfortunately, I, I don't have a closing word. Well, Other you, than everyone, to pick up your favorite your favorite piece of literature—it can be four or four sentences—and um, and learn them.
0: Charlene, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Navi.
0: And there you go, my friends. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Charlene as much as I did. I've always enjoyed talking to her, most especially about memorization and poetry and the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock and all of the other poems she knows. I've always admired people who study Shakespeare. I've never really studied Shakespeare. I've memorized a couple of Shakespeare's poems. I've been to a plenty of Shakespearean plays, but I'm hardly a Shakespearean scholar. I do know people who work with Shakespeare's texts tend to hold it in high esteem. They will look up every word. They make sure they know exactly what he meant before they memorize it and then perform it. Speaking of memorization and performance, I just received an email from Andrea Watson, who is the publisher at Three Eight House Press. She publishes poets mostly, plus some other authors as well. A couple of years ago she asked me if I had any work she might publish and I said, well, I wrote a book 10 years ago, uh, 100 poems in 100 days after having prostate surgery. It's not a book about cancer, I told her. It's a book about the healing process. She said, I'd love to see it. So I sent the book to her and she said, gee, would you interested in having me publish this. I, of course, said sure. I was flattered. I was pleased. I was excited that she wanted to to put my work out, to publish it, to print copies of it, and put them on the shelves in bookstores. Very happy about that. I was also very pleased because I had bothered to write the book. One Hundred Days is the title of the book, as it will appear soon on the shelves. It's also One Hundred Poems. On the 1st of April, when I woke from my surgery, I wrote poem number one. And since April is Poetry Month, I wrote 30 poems in 30 days. And around the 27th day, I decided, well, hmm, why not keep on going? Who needs 30 when you can write for 100 days? And I understood that if I stopped, skipped one day, it wouldn't work. So I put my mind to writing a poem a day for a hundred days. Now, these are short poems. It didn't take me all that long to do it. I was determined to just generate something, which I did. I then transcribed it and put it on Facebook and on my blog and then moved on. And the next day I did it again. As it turned out, I ended up with what one could call poetry, In fact, many of the entries are just straight-up pawns. Plenty of them, though, are pros. They do touch on cancer, and prostate cancer most especially. And of course, if you are aware of prostate cancer, this is a little fact you may not know, every man will end up with prostate cancer if he lives long enough. You're not guaranteed you'll get it if you die when you're 45. But if you live to be 95 or 100, you will likely have prostate cancer or pick it up along the way. So part of the idea behind these 100 poems is to encourage everyone to pay close attention to their health. Get a regular physical. Pay attention to your diet, all those things that don't really make that much difference when you're 25, 26, but they start to, to mount up over the years. So I was 61 when I had my prostate removed, and I was 61 when I wrote the 100 poems. So now I have the final manuscript. I'm proofreading it, reading the poems, and, and getting ready to send it back to Andrea for publishing. So as I'm sitting here looking at the manuscript, I'm thinking, well, could I memorize all 100 poems? might be interesting. It would take about a two-hour time frame to perform every one. God knows how long it would take to memorize, but it might be a worthy endeavor to have all of those on hand. It's certainly an interesting story. For example, as I said, the poems are short. Number 57, Stare into the Perfect. The Ease of Taos Continues. I've gained much contentment from the magpies in the trees and much camaraderie from the regulars here at Wired Cafe, who would believe me if I told them I was eating plums inside the bounty of my dreams. Dreams belong to this land. Far away, up in the mountains, a young shepherd tends his flock. He stares into the perfect openness of passing hours. His voice is a deer coming out of a tree. Eyes see everything when they are allowed to look. And so, my friends, that's just a sample of one of the 100 poems that will soon appear. I'm looking forward to telling you more about this as time goes on. For now, though, we've arrived at the end of our hour, and. I'd like to say thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville. Heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thanks, Walter Parks, for our theme song. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM. Also, you're invited to join me any Saturday morning for my Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week session. It's a salon with Allegra Houston, my creative collaborator. You can always find the Zoom link at imaginativestorm.com. And you can reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com or nave at imaginativestorm.com. Either one will end up in my inbox, my screen. So thanks ever so much for listening. I do hope you tune in again some other time. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.